Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Still Watching, Under the Banner of Heaven edition. I'm Vanity Fair Chief Critic Richard Lawson, and I'm here today with uh, VF Awards Editor Katie Rich. Hello, Katie. Hello, Richard. Here we are again to talk about television. Did you know that there's a lot of television to talk about? There is so much television that I I honestly, think, I, I like, I need to actually come up with a, a really comprehensive, like, management strategy it's not enough to just sort of like pick and choose like at willy-nilly it, it really has become very demanding yeah uh especially because a lot of it is like hour-long dramas based on extensive real life history um such as the show we're here to talk about today so yeah the show we're um, talking about today is under the banner of heaven which is an fx show that is exclusively on hulu uh it's based on john krakauer's 2003 tome of a non novel i don't know i don't know how to really classify it but it's um it's sort of in cold blood style in that it goes into a specific murder that happened in utah in 1984 but then krakauer uses the framing of that which has to do with mormon fundamentalism uh and various other scandals and tensions within the mormon church uh to zoom way out and look at the history of the mormon church particularly mormon fundamentalism all the way from joseph smith to um the 1984 murder uh, so it's dense. There's a lot. And it, so it's not mm-hmm. a show in this scrum of all this television that we really feel like we can ignore. So that's why we're doing this kind of one-off episode for this podcast about Under the Banner of Heaven. And just to hop in a second from another time and place, later on, you're going to hear a conversation that I had with Daisy Edgar-Jones about her role as Brenda on this show. Katie, I read the book a long time ago, but I believe you recently um, delved into Crack Hour's work. Um, what were your impressions of the book? Yeah, I have not finished reading the book, so I don't want to weigh in on it as a whole. Um, but it's really, I mean, tome is really the right word for it. And I knew it was this hugely influential book. And I think I probably learned things about Mormonism by osmosis because it's because so many people had read the books and learning about things like Warren Jeff's society in northern Arizona, of polygamists and stuff like that. Like, I'm sure I learned about it that way. Um, it's really interesting to read. It was published in 2003, like you said. It is very post 9-11 um, in a way that I'm interested to see if the show veers away from that. You know, it starts very early on talking about like when we think of religious fundamentalists, we think of it, Islamic extremism. I was like, oh, yeah, we, we did in 2003. Um, and I think it's almost more interesting now to read, I think, homegrown religious extremists and particularly anti-government religious extremists, which we can talk more about in the context of the show, have only become more relevant. You know, you think of 
January 6th, sort of the, the Bundy family and their standoff with the state of Oregon in 2016, um, they've become almost more prominent uh, as the, you know, war in Islamic terror has receded a little bit from American cultural focus. Um, and that's not the lens through which the book is written because it was written in 2003. But it makes me interested to see beyond these first two episodes that we're going to discuss and that I've seen um, how Under the Banner of Heaven maybe uh, adjusts the way that it explores this um, quintessentially American religion and and how we look at it today. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting to look at the book as um, I mean, he started working on it obviously before September 11th, but like sure, um, but how it 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 is sort of framed by this idea of religious extremism, whereas now, 19 years later, I see the book and now the show the show in particular because this is the new thing. Even though Dustin Lane's Black, who adapted the book, um, has been working on it for about a decade, um, I see it as as kind of trying to more diagnose um, the the violent history or the violent rot at the center of American history. You know, we know about mm-hmm. the violence of slavery. We know about the violence of uh, the genocide against Native Americans. We know a, a lot of things were very bad in this country's founding. Um, but the Mormon Church has a very violent past too, and it is, you know, a product of the Second Great Awakening, the burnt-over district in New York State, and and we think of that as not necessarily solely a time of in, of religious enlightenment, but um, you know, it, it the Mormon story, although we might have issues, you know, culture, American culture, mainstream wise, might have some questions or sort of curiosities about Mormons. Um, it, violence does not necessarily enter the picture of one's understanding of the church. Um, and I think that's what Krakow was trying to um, illustrate. And also now the show is because we are in living in a time when we are struggling to reconcile or reckon with uh, American history. And to the extent yeah. that a lot of it is now <laughs> not being taught in schools. Yeah. I mean, though, you read this book and it, I feel like so many of the pieces of American history start clicking into place. Like you can't learn about many chapters of American history before you run into uh, violence or about a community banding against other people and expelling them. Um, you know, the the story of the Mormons being pushed westward as different communities in uh, Ohio and Illinois and Missouri wanted them out of there. Like that really rings with what happened to Native Americans uh, for many, many different ways. Um, and, I, and I'm interested in the way that the Under the Banner of Heaven show is incorporating that history in in little bits. Um, mm-hmm. And in these first two episodes, it really is small amounts. I think you get more Joseph Smith in episode two. Um, and introducing more of the show, but it, is it a history lesson? Maybe not as extensive as the book, but with with similar goals. I think it's less of a history lesson and more that these these flashbacks to an, a way older time are meant to help illustrate the psychology of these characters. You know, mm-hmm. the lore that they're steeped in. You know, it's trying to make manifest these you know old stories that they cling to as gospel as evidence of their persecution uh, especially as it pertains to the US government um and gentiles you know people non-mormons um so i i think that that's how it it's i think it's less about giving the audience the overview of mormon history that the book does and more about trying to say these people to varying degrees of intensity really cling to these foundation not myths but you know maybe they've been mythologized some over the centuries but um you know as some sort of evidence of their struggle and of the the divine you know divinely ordained mission that they're on um Mm -hmm. so i i appreciate the usage there but i also i kind of do think that that could be accomplished at least what we've seen in these first couple episodes with just characters kind of talking that out um rather than um you know seeing actors in period costumes um in like the you know the wastelands of alberta canada where the series was filmed Mm -hmm. yeah i mean there's something kind of like magical realist almost about when you get this like brief flash to joseph smith looking into a hat and you're like i don't i don't understand what's going on and when you read the details in krakauer's book about about what was going on in culture and how joseph smith had peep stones that were like something a lot of people had where they would look at these rocks and divine the future like the spiritualism of that period is really interesting and strange compared to what we know now and and there's something about those flashbacks that add a like a different realm beyond true crime that i do find interesting um but it, it is unclear if it's where it's going to lead us and if it's worth taking that time around from away from the central characters yeah because you know from a very technical perspective or not very technical i suppose more of a structural perspective we have a lot of television these days that is told and, you know, stories told in multiple timelines. And this is not uh, this is one of those shows, you know, where we mm-hmm. have the murder investigation uh, led by Andrew Garfield's character, uh, Detective Jeb Pyrie. 
um, into the murders of Brenda Lafferty and her daughter, Erica. You know, in the interrogations that Jeb is doing with his partner, uh, Bill Taba, played by Gil Birmingham, we then get the the family story of the Lafferty family, is particularly starting when Brenda, um, played by Daisy Edgar Jones, enters into it. So we already mm-hmm. have these two competing timelines and a lot of brothers to juggle character-wise. So then to jump back to a third timeline, an even older timeline, um, that I think sometimes I said in my review of the series can really can disrupt the flow of the show mm-hmm. um, in a way that it's like we're already trying to process a lot of information. And also, I think, you know, because the, the, the book was a really big bestseller, it did come out almost 20 years ago. So maybe the show is not assuming familiarity with the book, but like the war in Jeff's case was really out there in the news a lot. And also there was big love. <laughs> You know, to the extent that I feel like Mormon fundamentalism and its various ills, like, and also there was the saga of the lost boys who were these kids who were, you know, these boys who were thrown out of these extremist communities because they were Mm -hmm. threatened, you know, they were uh, threats to the older men in terms of getting uh, women's attention and whatever. Um, And so I don't know, I at least feel like I'm steeped enough in some general foundational knowledge of the Mormon church, their history, that I don't necessarily need. I'm much more interested in the mechanics of this you know, these couple families and um, how this horrible thing happened um, than I am the bigger scope, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it seems like by inventing the Pyrie character played by Andrew Garfield, um, it's kind of trying to set up like here is a really mainstream Mormon, like much more like Mormons that you or I who are not Mormon would have met over the course of our lives um, than the Lafferty family. Yeah. I mean, and I think a lot of those Mormons felt really attacked by under the banner of heaven. And I and I really sympathize with that, the idea of being annoyed by some huge bestselling book focusing on the most fringe elements of your faith um, and treating, you know, fundamental aspects of Mormonism as weird when like the Bible's really weird. You know, it's it's not it's far from the only faith that has very strange stuff in its foundational texts. Mm-hmm. Um, but having Andrew Garfield is this like nice family man who loves his daughters and loves his wife, um, kind of coming face to face with the Lafferty family, who I think in the beginning in that first episode, he's like he knows them from from church and he has flashes back to like seeing Sam Worthington's character, Ron, in the pew. Um, and he wants to sit down with Alan, played by Billy Howell, who is the husband of Brenda, um, who seems like the shocked and sad husband. And I think um, Pyrie and Garfield's character is really relating to him and the idea is to kind of uncover that and why they went so off tracks. So I get the desire to have these characters start in the same place and tend to watch how the Lafferty's kind of fall apart. Um, but I think you're right that it's weird to withhold the fundamentalism as a twist. Which yeah. feels like it's what's happening. I, I think that what the, the Jeb character who is our, you know, proxy into the story um, and his mounting alarm and, and, and really what starts, I think, in the first episode as disbelief that there that the Mormons could be responsible for this, because I, yeah. I guess he is supposed to represent a, a a more like reform part of the church that is like, no, we're in the modern era. That's all in the past. It is not part of doctrine anymore, if it ever really was legitimately. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so how could you know, how could this be happening within our own community? Which I think does speak to a broader narrative about radicalization, which we see happening not just in religion, but, you know, just online stuff and uh, these days and QAnon and all that stuff is the shock that like the very homes that we're in, the systems that we happily move around in every day is being corrupted by something or certain members of those communities are taking everything, you know, to a much more extreme degree. And I, I, I think... I think that's done well. I guess you could call it Jeb's naivete about this. Mm-hmm. I just wonder if I'm seeing it as naivete because I'm in 2022 and I know more and I've read this book and everything. Yeah. Or if that really was organic to the community at the time. Like, if it, I mean, I know it was a shocking thing, but were mainstream Mormons as unaware of these fringe people with, with beards out in the mountains? I don't know. Yeah, that's a really good question because it does feel like now, like, even if you are... A practicing member of a faith you know that like there's the bad eggs out there like especially again in america where you have like branch aspects of faiths do crazy things often not often but enough that it's very prominent um and you have it in secular Inter- society too of course you oh know. yeah of course yeah. yeah like i mean you have you have you have radicals doing a lot of strange things all the time and to not know about it at all does feel strange but i do think andrew garfield sells it like he mm-hmm. his casting specifically feels really essential to making that character and the structure work 
Yeah, I'm thinking back to a documentary I watched. I think it was at Sundance this year. Um, and I forgive me, I, I forget the name of it, but it's about Mormon missionaries um, in mm. like very recent times. And they go to Finland, I believe. I think it's a Finnish documentary. Mm. Um, and these kids are what, 18, maybe yeah. 19. And they are very wide eyed and earnest and innocent. And I don't know if that's just because of how they grew up or what, you know, the, the sort of the, the very wholesome, you know, outward facing approach of the church, you know, uh, in the mainstream version of the church. So, you know, thinking about that, like maybe I can believe that um, because, you know, we, we we see in episode two a preacher saying that, like, we believe that humans are fundamentally good. And if that is really yeah. baked into your core understanding of the world. Maybe then, yes, they are a bit more wide-eyed than than are this, you know, us cynics on the outside who are just like, no, this stuff happens all the time. So yeah, I don't know. It's I I I I don't know. Do you? I I guess I do feel that the Jeb invention is necessary for a show like this. I don't know necessarily how you would tell the story without, frankly, detective characters or investigator characters of some sort. Mm, yeah, I mean, I guess you have it as Brenda. You know, have it be her story more than it is. And I I was reading in your review about how she maybe recedes to the background of the show, which I want to hear more about. But the idea of, you know, she was raised Mormon. She wanted to go to BYU. She really believed in the faith, but she also believed that she could have a job and her father did too. And so she is raising this one version of this faith and marries into what felt like a really prominent, solid family in the same faith and, and watching it transform and watching her husband and his brothers transform. I think that that horror movie version could work. Yeah, I mean, that's true. I, and I think that, you know, Dustin Lance Black, um, who won an Oscar for writing Milk and wrote J. Edgar and has worked and made some other things, um, you know, he grew up in the Mormon church as well. And so he he understands certain nuances. And I think that in in these first two episodes, I think a really carefully and well-drawn nuance is that coming from Twin Falls, Idaho, uh, Brenda, who is devout and, you know, walks the walk and talks the talk and really does seem to genuinely believe it from a more altruistic perspective that she was a good Mormon in her mind. Mm -hmm. And yet mm -hmm. down in Utah, in this family run by Eamon Lafferty, the patriarch, she was basically, you know, some sort of <laughs> feral savage who was, you know, talking about drinking, not that she did it, but just mentioning that it exists at all in front of children or having ambitions outside the home and all that stuff. So so showing that gradient of of people within the church and you know Eamon Lafferty was a pillar of community he was not viewed as, viewed as an extremist he was maybe a little bit more conservative you know maybe you could yeah. say hard line but he was not he was respected you know and welcomed by by his fellow uh, you know Mormons in 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 Utah and so I think that's a really interesting distinction and one that the flashbacks I think draw out really really well um because it becomes a tragedy way before the murder, you know, yeah. this is someone who is having her light sniffed, you know, snuffed out by this family of men, even though there are good people like her sisters-in-law and her husband who are trying to tear her away from that or, or protect her from it. Yeah. And I think maybe this goes to your point about the um, the jumping around nature of the timeline being to its detriment, because there's one extended chunk in the first episode where Brenda meets the whole family. Basically, they're at a big party for somebody. I can't remember. Some, someone's having a party. Um, and the whole family is there and it's a ton of people. It's so many brothers and so many kids. And like to, to track, keep track of everybody is really difficult, but it does it really effectively. And I think gets at the dynamics of this family really well. And then after that is the scene where the father kind of makes um, Dan, played by White Russell, the head of household. And you kind of see the fracture that that's creating already. Um, there's some really good, efficient storytelling about this one particular family when it like slows down enough to do it. Yeah, the dynamics within it are really important to be able to parse right away. Um, and that's Ron Lafferty, played by Sam Worthington, who is the eldest. Um, but he is, in his father's eyes, a little bit of an apostate because he did not go into the family chiropractic business. He has become a real estate developer and a very successful one. Um, yeah, and I believe in real life. And I maybe we should do a spoiler section for the way the book works and talks about the, the murder itself. Um, but I think in real life, he was less um, devout at first than the rest of his brothers. Right. And he's married to Diana, played by Denise Goff, um, and she's definitely someone to keep an eye on because she, her, Diana, unfortunately, figures in very prominently in the story, not not by her own fault, but like, um, so that that's a, an important couple to keep an eye on in terms of the sibling structure. Um, and then you have Dan Lafferty and, and his wife, Matilda, played by Chloe Peary. And Dan, 
as we can already see in these two episodes is already radicalized you know yes. and not just yeah. about mormon faith i think that'll come later in the se- the series but um he's v- very libertarian he's really anti-federal government anti-tax anti any sort of thing you know levied upon pe- people by the government and it's an interesting introduction to how that can be curdled by religious extremism but also how people seek out religious extremism to qualify and validate what they kind of already inherently believe about the world, mm-hmm. you know. And that's something that um, I think the book does in a really interesting way about the polygamy, which has not become as big a part of these first two episodes, but I think will show up. Basically how, like, I, I don't think it says this out loud, but it's like, well, Joseph Smith, like, kept meeting women who were beautiful and who he wanted to be with. And then, like, it became part of the religious doctrine. And, like, that the the word from God that, you know, proclaimed that polygamy was possible was directed directly to Joseph Smith's wife, who was not into it. Like, it's... You know, you don't want to be like, well, this guy founded a religion just because he wanted to have other wives. But I, I think it gets at the way that humans can build things to serve their own interests, but create a religious structure around it. Um, I think it does that really well. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I read the book a long time ago, but I, I so I don't remember a ton of it. But I do remember that in the portion of the book where Krakauer is basically mapping out like the, the development of, of the plural marriage aspect of, of early Mormonism. It, that it's a very somber book, but that part feels kind of humorous because it's kind of a little bit like, well, he kind of had his eye on this gal. So, oh, wait, wait, I had another vision. <laughs> like, uh-huh, uh-huh, exactly. <laughs> you know, um, I don't mean to laugh at it because it's a serious thing. But like, you know, it, it, it this is all human made, you know, depending on your perspective on it. And and certainly people or are at least human interpreted, right? Human like interpreted. even if okay, God yeah. is speaking directly to people, he's using people as this vessel. And, you know, the way that Krakauer describes Mormonism having all these, um, you know, branches like the different people is that there's the idea that God can speak directly to you. And, and the Lafferty's uh, experience some of that, as he describes in the book. And you, you wrote in your review of The Northman a few weeks ago, like what a mess men make. And mm. uh, this is kind of another one of those stories, right? Oh, big time. Big time. And and I think that, I mean, and I think that Daisy Edward Jones plays this dawning realization very well. She's still mm. trying to keep a sunny disposition, but she sees, so once Eamon leaves, he and his wife, uh, he's going on his second mission, his wife's first mission. And so he, you know, entrusts Dan as the head of the house, essentially to get back at Ron for not going into the family business, uh, which creates immediate tensions and rifts and resentments. You know, and, and uh, so so basically Dan and his wife, Matilda, are left to carry on the business and as sons are wont to do dan wants to innovate and change and shake off his dad's stuffy old ways and mm-hmm. that's not going well whereas you know brenda's there to offer wise counsel to matilda and encouragement and you know kind of have these conversations about like can you hear the heavenly father speaking through you and to you you really see how isolated these women are even though the family has not yet gone into the most stark of fundamentalism yet yeah, um, they are already uh, she's basically I mean, Brenda has married into a family where she is far less valued than she thought she would be, which is a, a chilling thing to watch unfold because you see how in, it, it could happen in slow increments, slow enough and small enough that she doesn't quite notice it until it's it's too late. My poor Matilda, that second episode where you're watching her just like try to keep up with this business and, you know, she doesn't pay the taxes because her husband told her not to pay the taxes. And then they get in a whole bunch of trouble with the tax man. And and, and Brenda believes in her so much. And you can see how they could really rely on each other. But that's not going to be possible in this family. Yeah. And the way that Eamon talks about before he leaves about, you know, it's not we're not just sustaining. We're going to ever build, ever scale. I mean, it makes me think about the tech shows that we just covered on this <laughs> podcast. You know, it's a very American ethos that there is. What no would cont- Adam Newman have done in this family? <laughs> right. Yeah. It's like there is no contentedness with what you have. There is always more and more and more to be had. And and I think it's really interesting to see that. I mean, obviously, Eamon and, and his, some of his sons believe that through financial success, that is honoring god or you know honoring something that has a deeper meaning than money but it really just does boil down to he's mad at his one son for going into a different business so he throws an unprepared son into it and then the wife suffers because of that you Mm -hmm. know it's all just these kind of prideful male decisions that um, have ruinous results yeah or even the um the tv professor i guess where in that second episode you see brenda in the studio and he you know puts his hand on her hand, like classic workplace harassment thing. And I, I guess there's no really explicit mention of the church in that scene, but you assume since it's at BYU, it's this person is also a Mormon. Um, and the way she sticks up for herself 
and how in the family it's not going to happen. Well, it is, you know, it, you know, this, and this is iterated in many places other than the Mormon church, but you know, the, the way that just general, and I don't mean to reduce it by saying this, but run of the mill misogyny and predation from men toward women, when it's wrapped up in a sort of religious dogma um, about roles and, 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 you know, honoring men and, and, you know, people's places and their, their callings and where they're supposed to be, you know, it gets really insidious, you know, really fast with like, um, all of this seems to be justified by, uh, by some sort of religious tenet, which, you know, is kind of ridiculous, but Brenda sticks up for herself. Um, and then you see kind of where that's coming from when, um, we go back to her childhood home and her family, um, in Idaho with Alan in tow, mm-hmm. uh, and her dad, who is, you know, a conservative Mormon guy, but not quite so conservative. And he really seems to, to bristle at the way that Alan speaks about his family organization and it, by kind of a in, inference, what that says about how Brenda is going to function in that family. Yeah. And again, I feel really grateful, you know, reading some of the book and then watching these episodes of the show that these different ways of being Mormon are represented within it. I think that was really important for visualizing this stuff and not just making it the history lesson, because you want to respect the way that people are practicing their faith and not harming anybody in the process. And the Mormon church is vast and has a lot of people doing a lot of really good things. It also won't ordain women still. You know, it's still complicated to to throw your support behind. Um, and I'd be really interested to hear from Mormon viewers of how they feel about all this variety of depictions. But I think they I think they kind of owe it to this large community of people to show a little bit more range there. Well, yeah, because the alternative is absolutist and and sort of not true to any real life. You know, yeah, um, there are plenty of people who are believers in faiths that I don't believe in and that uh, I think can be harmful, but like they as individuals are 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 not that, you know, you know, and you think about like this is 1984, that's only what 5 years after um black people were allowed to be Mormons. Yeah, um, oh yeah. No, I mean, you the, know, the the, 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 the writing that, about um black people in the book in the book of Mormon that's quoted in under the banner of heaven is more shocking than what they write about women. It's it's bad. Yeah. And we see how Bill is treated as um, a Native American, um, you mm-hmm. know, who has a lot more claim to any of this land than these people do. Yeah. Um, yeah. I um, I don't want to talk too much about upcoming episodes, but he his story becomes more prominent as the show goes on. Right. Um, To some extent. Yeah. It, it I, I think that the, as the show goes on, it gets a little more unwieldy because we do spend more time in the in the old, you know, the old days. And, and mm, um, okay. I think that certain characters kind of do fade into the background, as you said. So. So we'll see. I mean, I, I think that it's it's I'm glad that the Bill character is there because it is an important reminder that there is a whole tenet of Mormon, you know, history or the dogma or mythology, however you want to label it, about Native Americans. They are known as the Lamanite people who, you know, are part mm-hmm. of one of the original four tribes of people, I suppose. Um, and so but in that, you know, we see that that term be used a bit derisively by a local um, sheriff when uh, bill goes trying to investigate these rumors about this cult you know group of bearded men shooting guns in the woods yeah yeah and i guess the episode two ends on a bit of a cliffhanger about his character although i've got i got faith that uh he's gonna be okay <laughs> yeah yeah if, only because i like him so where do you think this show fits in the sort of true crime boom if you want to call it that like do, do you think the show thus far distinguishes itself enough to stick out amongst I don't know, the staircase and maybe even some of those tech shows we watched. I mean, we're getting a lot of this based on a book or based on a real thing stuff right now. So I'm curious where this show falls in in your estimation of all that. Yeah, I was also thinking about We Own This City, which I don't think you've watched, but it's the the new show from David Simon. A little bit, Simon. yeah, one episode. Um, yeah. Also based on a nonfiction book um, about a, you know, a really different story about the gun gun task force, I think it's called, in, in Baltimore. And, you know, a Baltimore cop story from the creator of The Wire, um, but also has like a big jumping timeline that's really hard to keep track of. Um, and I think is like really doggedly true to the facts in a way that this one isn't. Um, but these shows... They take work. They have Mm -hmm. to really um, you have to really wrap your brain around them to the point that and I think this is what you wrote in your review that like, does it just make you want to read the book instead of watching this thing? And we own this city, I think, really paid off. It's got some great performances in it. And I think if you've watched The Wire, you kind of feel like you're sliding back into the world that you knew from that show. Um, And Under the Banner of Heaven, I think, is doing something similar. I think we haven't talked much about Wyatt Russell yet, but I think he's really tremendous as Dan so far. And we talked about Andrew Garfield. Um, 
but it feels like it's kind of like cracking open a door and you're like, okay, well, I'm going to go do all the extra reading so I can really understand this. Um, and I, and I don't know that that's the most satisfying TV experience. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just wish that this show was coming out at a time where it had a little more space to breathe, you know, because it's in this glut of shows being coming out right before Emmy qualifications end and, um, I just I, I think that, you know, because this was such a long labor of love for Dustin Lynn's Black and it's based on this revered book, like I just wish it had a little bit more prominent place in the TV landscape, even if I don't think it's 100 percent successful in what it's trying to do. I think it is a a decent and I mean that in the sort of like qualitative like human way. I think it is a very mm. empathetic approach to this. And I think that even through the Dan character, who is a monster, you know, um, <laughs> Uh, in 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 a lot of ways, um, as is Ron, um, we should say. I mean, this is fact. That these are the two guys who were convicted of killing Brenda. Um, yeah, which is uh, something that is treated like a twist. I, I did not know that having watched the first two episodes, and I pick up the book, and it's like on the second page, it's like they did it. I was like, oh, yeah, did they? Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. I'm I'm intrigued by the choice of the show to present it that way too. Yeah. Well, and yeah. So we'll, I mean, obviously, they're going to get they're going to get worse and worse. These two brothers, um, and the and the other ones too. I mean, we've already seen uh, Robin you know, apprehended when he's trying to essentially evade the police. Um, mm-hmm. And he's bearded and seems to have bought into um, this dangerous ethos along with his brothers. Uh, and there's another brother coming, Samuel, um, played by Rory Culkin, um, who we meet briefly. Uh, in oh, yeah, you've one. seen him. I mean, you, you see him in that um, dinner scene. You're like, oh, it's a Culkin. It's got to be. He looks yeah. like yeah. all the others. Little Rory from um, You Can Count On Me. Um, yeah. And we also do see when when the de- when Eamon and, and his wife leave and, and then so the, all the adult sons are you know, now the the rulers of the roost with Dan in, in particular position of prominence, the first thing Samuel does is kind of let out a little whoop and slap his wife's behind and say, woman, go make my lunch or something, you know? Yeah, so yeah, like, yeah. We, we see these little, he's joking, quote unquote, but like, not really. But, but mm-hmm. I think in that sort of, they're not making them outright monsters quite yet. I, I think that Wyatt Russell is doing something really remarkable because he's a loathsome character already. And yet we, we, I, I understand at least his dynamism. I understand why he is loved by his father and why the brothers kind of do, you know, they have their questions about him, but they do defer to him, not just because their dad has conferred that authority on him, but there's something else there. And I think that makes for a really dangerous uh, quality when it comes to, you know, it, it, because he's getting more and more radical in his beliefs. Well, there's something they, um, the, the Crack Hour book talks about, about uh, Joseph Smith's charisma. Um and how he just had the ability to get people to follow him, which is something you hear about a lot of um, religious leaders, cult leaders, um, or just, you know, people who get a lot of people to listen to them. And it does seem like Dan has that. And Wyatt Russell is really good casting for that because he's he's Goldie Hawn's son. Of course, he's got that charisma. And I think, I mean, maybe I'm like way like, you know, armchair psychology here. But, um, you know, Wyatt Russell is the son of famous, very famous people uh, who are actors. And he's an actor himself. And so he so knows. Give, give Kurt Russell credit also for giving him his charisma. He's got plenty of it, too. Right. Exactly. Like and, and why, so Wyatt Russell knows what it is to live in the shadow of, uh-huh. of a looming parental figure. And I think he teases out that frustration really well. You know, and that charisma, I think, also extends to Andrew Burnap, who plays Joseph Smith, uh, who's very handsome. And uh, he just won a Tony for uh, uh, playing one of the leads in The Inheritance on Broadway, which is this big two part show about AIDS. Andrew Garfield won a Tony for playing on Broadway for being one of the leads of a big two-part play about AIDS, like, <laughs> and and also about Mormons. Angels in America is very much about yeah. Mormons. Uh, yeah. So that's an interesting uh, bit of connectivity. But I think it's really crucial that you know. Have you ever heard that? I think it's an urban legend. I don't think it's actually true, but it was. I, I sort of. I, I've heard it enough times for enough different people to sort of half believe it. Is that um, the best-looking missionaries get sent to big American cities? Um, because I mean, they think that they'll be more effective there, whereas the maybe homelier ones get sent to places further flung. So I think we're dealing with a lot of hands. reason, here. right? Yeah. It does, right? Do you think that Wyatt Russell being the only real American makes him stand out more because so many, there's so many Australians and Brits in the show? I mean, that might be it. I will say Sam Worthington, I think he's good on the show as Ron, but um, his accent works a little rough. And it's actually, when you watch on screeners, this little behind the scenes, um, the screeners that I had, and I think you had too, Katie, 
um, there was a lot of stuff that was kind of unfinished. There were, you know, there were special effects. There was like in one case, a big um, like mansion had to, they were like cut out house from, from like rural <laughs> Joseph Smith scene because it was very <laughs> anachronistic. But in some of them, it says uh, needed ADR Sam uh, or Ron um, accent cleanup. <laughs> Uh, I mean, and I, I don't know. Yeah, that not they everyone fully did it. is the master. I, I thought about Chloe um, Peary, like she, you know, she is Scottish uh, and is surrounded by all of these like Irish and English actresses who are doing not their natural accents. I just wonder how confusing that must be. For oh yeah, yeah. I should also mention that Denise Goff, who is um, British as well, was also in Angels in America with Andrew Garfield. So, oh, yeah. it's a very she played uh, she played Harper. That is that is why her name is familiar to me. That's so funny. They like I wonder if Dustin Lance Black just saw that Angels in America production was like, aha. You, you take come them on. all. <laughs> More Mormon stuff. <laughs> Get on the plane with me. Let's yeah. go to Utah. Yeah. Do we want to talk about Daisy Edgar Jones a bit? I know that we've said that the character of Brenda kind of struggles maybe as the show goes on, but I do think she really uh holds herself well at the center of those first two episodes. And I think you get why she stood out to everybody. Um, I, I feel like it's something you always read when someone uh, dies suddenly. It's like, oh, she was amazing. She walked into a room and she lit it up. Um, but it feels true for Brenda in some way and for and possibly why she was so threatening to all of these brothers is because she had maybe charisma to, to rival Dan's. Right. Exactly. It's competing charisma and women are mm -hmm. not supposed to have that. And she wants mm -hmm. to be on television, you know, um, and we see the tragedy of that, not just for her thwarted career ambitions, but, you know, Right when she's first introduced to the family, she makes a little faux pas in front of the father. But then she's talking to the many, many little little kids who are kind of staring at her because she's the new yeah. thing, you know. And 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 the way that Daisy plays that very naturally is that you just immediately see her ability to relate to people and be warm and accommodating and 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 playful. And then we see that a bit later when she's um talking to uh, one of the other Lafferty brothers who seems to have some sort of developmental disability. Um, mm -hmm. And she's very kind and maybe overly kind because she lifts her skirt to clean squirrel blood off his hands. And that seems to be some sort of violation of showing a woman's knees or something. I don't know. But mm -hmm. like, but I think it's a really well calibrated character and a really great performance. It's just it just feels so fluid, which I think, you know, makes it uh, I mean, even if she was a raging jerk, it would be a tragedy. But, you know, you just see like that this bright young person was um, so destroyed by these, you know, jealous awful men yeah i didn't see her in um fresh that movie with sebastian stan that was at sundance um but she's got where the crawdogs sing coming this year i feel like it's a a good like next step forward in this breakout career she's having and she's showing range you know mm -hmm. um I, I she's really good and fresh um her character is not that fleshed out har har um but uh <laughs> Uh, I won't spoil why that's a joke, but if you haven't seen Fresh, but um, but yeah, she just has a real ease about her as an actor. And um, I think that's exactly the quality required um, for this role, which, you know, could easily have been thankless. But I think at least in these two episodes, the show is giving her time to define herself and to be understood, um, even if, you know, later on, I think she does kind of disappear. So now here I am again to introduce the interview that I did with Daisy Edgar Jones, who was calling in from London, fresh from the Met Gala in New York City, to talk to me about her experience really getting to know the Mormon church for the first time and really digging into this character of Brenda. So let's hear my conversation with Daisy Edgar Jones. The Run for Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowich, um, who should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah, that. we support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are... AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, AWOK, -okay, and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
Did you have a big night out after the uh, the Met Gala? We did. We went to some of the parties, and yeah, that it was just a mad, surreal experience. <laughs> yeah, was it? Is it your first time, or had you been? Did you go oh, in the fall? Yeah. No, no, first time, first time. Yeah, I, I saw you at our Oscar party too. So I feel like that's two really big uh, landmarks in a really short period yeah. of time. It's sort of wild to go back to socializing post COVID, and I feel like that is like the <laughs> absolute baptism of fire i know <laughs> i know full of people i've like admired for such a long time i sort of felt like i'd stepped inside the telly and was like not in a real <laughs> not in a real race <laughs> well because the the whole normal people breakout, and this was i think when we interviewed you before we talked about this like you it happens in COVID. like people are getting so attached to the work that you're doing in such a vacuum and then you re-emerge from it and you're doing all of these other projects like just the idea of getting your bearings and figuring out what to do and what you want to do it seems so challenging yeah, I feel like we sort of were introduced, it's almost like we did, um, you know, we're introduced to this sort of to press and, and, and things like that and uh, with sort of stabilizers on, like we were like, and now we're sort of go, now we're sort of finally taking them off and like experiencing it in the real world. And it's definitely, um, it's definitely, yeah, it's a sort of, um, sort of a lot of pinch yourself moments really where you're like, how did I really get here? Because, you know, my, my sort of, um, I guess understanding that the show had reached, you know, the US and and was was popular was was purely was purely over text or over my phone. But in the actual in my actual life, I was still just in my bedroom. So it's um yeah, it's been very sort of surreal. Well, when you have a breakout like that, you know, you're getting people who want to cash you in things. You're getting scripts. You're getting offers. And I'm curious about how you figure out what the right thing is, and then how under the banner of heaven becomes one of those things. Like when what kind of spidey sense do you develop for yourself about what feels right. Yeah, I think I was really keen to try, if I could, to choose roles and 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 styles of of, of TV and film that I, that that were really different to to what I'd done before. And so I feel like you know I, I did a film called Fresh, which couldn't which couldn't be more different to normal people. It's like you know a real genre piece and and quite stylized and um and a, you know a very different character. And then I think the same was said for sort of Under the Banner in that I knew. I, first of all, I was such a huge admirer of like Ron Howard and, and the and the sort of um, you know Lance and the and the um, people behind the project and David, our, one of our directors. And I'm always I tried to be quite filmmaker led too because you know TV and film is such a filmmaker medium, mm-hmm. um, and so you want to feel safe in their hands. Um, but also just yeah, choosing projects and characters that were really different to anything I'd done before. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and th- this is such an American story and it's there are so many non-Americans in it, which I'm fascinated by. Um, but it's such a leap for, I, you know, I think you said you didn't really know anything about the Mormon church at all before, like the not just a leap in terms of acting, but in terms of research and, and jumping into something like is there is there intimidation in that? And it, it, even though it's exciting. Well, there's something that's one of the things that I lo- love about what I do is that, you know, you you do get that opportunity to sort of delve into a subject matter that you that you might know of otherwise like looked into with such more mm-hmm. detail you know and um the the book that the scripts are inspired by is so such a fascinating read and I I you know I probably wouldn't have come to it if it weren't for the project so um so yeah I really I just found it so interesting to learn about yeah so when you pick up that book I mean the under the banner of heaven book is so there's so much history in it like Brenda your character is is a part of the story but it's massive so do you just sit down with it and try to absorb about the history do you highlight all the chapters that are about you like how do you approach something that's so so large when you first read it yeah well I think like you said sort of absorbing as much as you can and and you know and and I think the book does a really good job of sort of of teaching you as as you read about the sort of you know the foundations of of the faith and sort of um so you do learn a huge amount reading it um but then it also sort of focuses on in on particular cases and particular sort of relationships with the religion and obviously mm-hmm. religion is incredibly sus- sort of subjective and so you know i think you know there is a real difference between the fundamentalist um you know aspects of the religion that we the, of the faith that we sort of explore in i guess this series but um to the to the more mainstream um community so so i think that that was really fascinating and then and then it was sort of about because this story um, or the adaptation, it, it, it sort of just explores this one particular case. And so then it was about really kind of working on the scripts and the material at hand and and, and, and figuring out how to kind of sensitively sort of uh, bring the story to, you know, to the screen. 
Yeah, I mean, is that something that Dustin Lance Black, who grew up in the church, you know, not in a fundamentalist version of like, does he, does he give you guidance as well? Being like, here's the extreme things depicted in this book and the history. Here's my personal experience. Does that help guide you as well? It was helpful to have him. And, and we also had lots of sort of advisors on set too, who, um, yeah, were really able to kind of um, guide us when we needed it. And, and you know, and, and like you said, show all the different perspectives of, 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 of the, of the um, community and, um, and yeah, I think it was really important to to have that and to make sure that we were being sort of um, truthful and, and accurate with certain things. Yeah, I mean, the way that people talk about Brenda in the book, and I think it's some in the show too, I think when a lot of people die young, they're like, oh, they were the most beautiful person. They were the most fun person. They loved everybody. But I think that she must, she seemed to really have had that kind of spark. And I think the show shows it in these really small ways. And I, I'm curious how much you leaned on that or the idea of her being like, a young woman who didn't deserve to die, but kind of special beyond that and how you, how you can play that when you're in her character. Yeah. I'm glad you picked up, picked up on that too, because I, that's certainly what, what I did when I, when I read the book, um, you know, and then also when I read the script, she, she really was clear to me on the page. And, and, and I think what was really clear was sort of how much good she, she really gifted the other women. And I think that as the series goes on, we see really quite how, how much she, she sort of um, helped them. Um, and so I think, you know, it was really important to me too, to, um, to you know, because I, I, I'm a big watcher of, of true crime and I do find it interesting that so often the kind of main kind of character is the, is the person who committed the crime rather than mm-hmm. the victim of it. And that, and the victim becomes purely defined by this, this most awful thing that happened. To yeah. them. And I think it was really important to show as much of her life and, and truly what a difference she could make in that, in, in that time, rather than her just being this victim, you know, this sort of faceless, nameless victim. And I, I really felt that that was um, really important to honor her, you know, in this story. Yeah, I love that you're a fan of true crime because this show is like sort of linked to that genre, but it's really so beyond it. And it's interesting because there's um, Candy Out Now and The Staircase, also a lot of shows about women who died in their homes. Mm. Um, and um, on this show in particular, like knowing the true crime genre as you do, like where did you feel, where do you feel like the show is kind of diverging from that or, or telling a, a different story? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, I think because it's sort of focusing on a what thematically on something broader than just this particular crime I think that, that, that there's you know this obviously her her death is kind of the anchor throughout the series but it's also exploring sort of someone's kind of um relationship with their faith and I think that's a big part of the story you know Andrew's character Pyrie and, and his sort of um his his relationship with his faith and then also um like I said kind of exploring the wider themes of like women's roles in this particular um sector of or, or sort of approach to the religion and and so yeah it was um it, it sort of, I guess, touches on things that are, are, are sort of, it uses this particular story to explore wider themes. Yeah. I think you said that you got to know Andrew well because you were, you know, in production together, but you guys aren't in any scenes together. So was it just that, like, the whole cast is up in Alberta and you're, it's like the summer camp thing where you just have each other? Like, what, is, what does that bring when you guys are, um, you know, on a location like that? Yeah, well, we were there for, gosh, about four and a half, five months. And also because of COVID, you know, we weren't able to leave. And and a lot of us, you know, it's a massive ensemble cast. So there's a huge amount of scenes within the episodes that I'm, you know, I and others weren't in. Yeah. So it's a lot of free time. (laughs) And I think, you know, you do, you do sort of um, rely on each other to kind of, you know, get through, get through that because it can be quite lonely, this job, you know, you're away from home for such a long time. So I was really lucky. Everyone was lovely. And we, um, we did a lot. We did a lot of hiking. We did a lot of, um, we went to Banff quite a lot and, mm. uh, and we sort of, um, would have like food nights and obviously there was quite, yeah, like you said, quite a lot of, um, British cast as well. Yeah, um, I know. So it was, um, it was nicer. Um, sort of now that I'm back home, I'm still able to see a lot of the cast too, cause they live near me. So, um, so yeah, a lot of bonding. Yeah, I was thinking about the um, the actress who plays Matilda, who is keeping her accent when surrounded by everyone else yeah. doing American accents. I can't. I just imagine that being confusing for you, like kind of like jumping back and forth and being like, no, 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 she's she, she's still from the UK, but I'm I have to be I know, American. I know. And actually, Chloe was putting on a different Scottish accent, so it was like, oh it was like, wow, yeah, but um, but a really like a, a much stronger one. So so um, and actually, Chloe now lives five minutes from my from where I do. In oh, well. it's really nice. <laughs> um, nice. Yeah, we got very close and. Um, and she's so brilliant. So, um, so yeah, we, we would hang out a lot and cycle around and make Sunday roasts. <laughs> yeah. Well, that um, the scene in the first episode where you're really meeting the entire Lafferty family and it is a 
ton of people, a ton of kids and all these characters introduced. And it's kind of a long sequence. And I feel like dinner scenes are always notoriously difficult to shoot because you have to get everybody from different sides and everyone has to be eating. So what was what was the production in that scene like? And how do you kind of keep yourself grounded on a what I presume was a pretty long day? Oh my gosh. I remember David was our director who's amazing was so like, oh my God, this scene. <laughs> <There's> like, <laughs> cause like you said, there's a huge amount. And also he's basically introducing the entirety of the rest of the cast in one scene. Yeah. <laughs> two scenes. So, you know, he did such a good job and I, I just, I loved working with David so much. He's, um, I think he's, I think he was sort of began in documentary filmmaking and it really feels that way when you filming with him because he's incredibly loose with a lot of stuff like usually when you're acting you know you have specific marks you have to hit you Mm. have you know continuity checks you also have like um you know cameras are usually quite like rooted in where they are um or if they aren't that you're pretty but he would be he we didn't have marks we were allowed to freestyle we didn't even have to stick to any of the scripts like we were able to really play and I think you really see that because everyone is just so in that moment together and it was like Mm -hmm. in in a theater play and um but we were up against it because also he wanted this specific um, sort of twilight hour light for the yeah. dinner scene. And like, obviously it's it, like, there's a massive monologue that has to be said and all these eyelines. So I think mm-hmm. such a good job. And, and yeah, it's such a, it's such a kind of, you're, you're as overwhelmed as Brenda, I think, watching that scene with all the different sort of characters yeah. that are coming in and sort of, um, yeah, accosting her. <laughs> yeah. And there's another scene that comes later in the third episode where Brenda has kind of this, a confrontation with Dan. And I think that she's, her character is so interesting in that moment because she's not like a, what we think of as a traditional feminist. Like she's willing to give up her job for her husband. She's, you know, raised in the church, but she has, she's willing to stand up for herself in this way. And I imagine that that scene doesn't play out the way that you might confront someone who's treating you that way. But and, and like, but like Brenda approaches it differently. And I'm, I'm curious about how you approach doing that scene yeah well I remember the blocking of that scene was really interesting and you know it's 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 probably not noticeable but it is on a sub- subconscious level that they're almost kind of circling her um mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. really and I, I found that really interesting to play with because you know you feel sort of um completely exposed or under attack like in that m- moment because they're kind of walking past and firing things at her and and yeah I think she's she's amazing she's amazing the way she stands up to them because you know not many would um and mm-hmm. you know I, I think she we see sort of she has a very different relationship with um the faith and the other women you know and and I think she gets quite a shock when she sees the way they are uh, treated by the brothers you know in the, in in that moment yeah and I think the show more so than the book like really takes pains to be like there are lots of people who are raised in the LDS church who like are great members of society and who like women who kind of carve out roles from themselves. And I feel like Brenda's storyline really represents that part of what, you know, the way that millions of people come from this faith. Um, and I feel like for for Mormons or people who just like want to, you know, respect the church in some way, that's an important factor in the story that I, I think that you're doing a great job of getting across and mm-hmm. probably with the help of lots of people, but it's, um, it feels really effective to me. Oh, thank you. So I have not seen the kind of final episodes of the season. And I think you know, the story expands and gets bigger, um, but it feels like it keeps checking in on Brenda, like that she is the center of how this story goes. Is there anything kind of coming or anything that you remember particularly well from those later episodes that people should look forward to? Yeah, I, I think that we really see as the episodes go on and particularly particularly in the later episodes, we really see sort of, um, like I was saying before, that that relationship with the other women and and um, and how much she sort of gifts or or tries to give them agency and um mm-hmm. and I think that that was something that really I found really important about when I read the scripts and you know when I was talking to Lance about her like I I think it's so important to actually just represent just generally women pulling and looking up like pulling each other up and looking after each other you know and, and supporting mm-hmm. each other because I think so often we're sort of pitted against each other and I think I really found it refreshing to see um how, how much she wants to help and how much she sort of does actually and so um and so yeah I think that was a big a big part in um and yeah I think we just really see her strength and her resilience as the story goes on and she's really she's really sort of put in um a really difficult position um so yeah I hope I hope people feel that I hope people really get that from her and women standing by each other in that environment in particular where it's the men who are really like not just a patriarchal family but like veering so heavily into something really dramatic like it is a really brave thing to stand by each other in that circumstance totally and obviously she paid the huge price for it yeah. I mean, so you spent last year filming this fresh and where the crowd sing, and now they're all 
coming? Do you do you feel prepared for the like uh, for the where the crawdads sing coming out into the world and you know being even more visible than you have been already? I do, I do. I feel like um yeah, it's so interesting. Everything I, I was away working all last year, and then it, it feels like everything's come out in one big go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I did I did fresh press earlier, and now under the banner, and now yeah, crawdads, and um obviously that's the, the, the biggest thing. So I'm I'm just so excited. I feel very ready for people to see it now, and um. And yeah, it's it, again a very, very different story, a very different character, and um, and yeah, I'm just I'm I, I'm uh, really pleased that all the characters I've played ha- have been so different, and and so um, so yeah, just people. I hope people enjoy it as much as they love the book because I know. Yeah, you really can't ask for anything more than like three huge different roles in the same year because if, yeah. if anyone thinks that there's only one thing you can do, you just have the proof right there to point yeah, to. So yeah. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for talking to me and for making the effort to get to a quiet space, and um, you know, doing a podcast is not the easiest way to do an interview so I really appreciate it maybe as a concluding question we were talking about how much TV there is to watch and how many of them are about murders and true crime I mean Richard if you didn't have to watch this or didn't have to watch any of them is this the one that you would stick with Uh, do you think that it is uh, you know it's unfolding its story in a way that people owe it the time I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's only seven episodes. So it, I mean, it's, it, that's a seven hour plus commitment, but like, cause the first episode's over an hour. Um, yeah. But I, I think it is, you know, it's well directed. David McKenzie did two episodes. Courtney Hunt, you know, did Frozen River. She does two. Uh, Dustin Lance Black directs one, Isabel Sandoval. And, uh, and I believe Tom, Tommy Shalami does the last episode, um, which is TV kind of Pro. intriguing. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, and I think the performances are strong. I think there's enough there. That I would, I, I think I would, I would choose it over the staircase, for example, mm-hmm. uh, which is really grim. Also about a maybe murder. I mean, that that one's more question. This is definitely a murder. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's it's hard for me to say. Hey, yeah, definitely watch this show about like the evils of uh, extremism and that all led to a brutal double murder. But like, uh, maybe if people haven't read the book, there is something instructive about it. Maybe it will at least encourage people to seek out the book, which I think is definitely worth reading. So. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know how high I'd prioritize it, honestly, but I also can't really answer that because I, I have to do this stuff for work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the thing that I'm interested to watch, and this is maybe sort of a spoiler from the book, um, but in the book, Ron's transformation into a hardcore fundamentalist kind of happens over the course of one meeting. Like he goes and meets with his brothers, he comes out of that meeting a changed man, and that's what his wife says. Um, and the way that the show has established Sam Worthington's character as kind of the the likable one and the one who you can relate to, and that Brenda can you know, be smart in front of, unlike the rest of them. I, I hope it tracks that transformation because I think that character development is really interesting. If we're going to make the show about people and not just kind of these big ideas behind it, he would be the one I think you can put a lot on there. So I, I want to see how that pans out. Yeah, yeah, because you also have to understand Ron's specific anger toward uh, Brenda and, and where that yes. came from, uh, yeah. which we, we, we do get in the show. But uh, again, there's so many characters to juggle. I'm not sure that anyone is given their proper due as the show goes on. Yeah. I mean, this is uh, the problem with these true crime stories in, in some ways, always. I mean, with We Crash, even a true scam, true downfall, uh, there's a lot of real complicated people involved. And if you want to do justice by them, you want to limit the scope or, or do something else. And, and this really is taking on a whole lot. Yeah. In that, like I said in my review, I think the show is a fine supplement to the book. I don't know how it is as a standalone, but um, I haven't finished the series yet. So we'll see. Yeah, uh, well, we'll uh, maybe we'll get to talk about it on Little Gold Men, or else we're here. Who knows? People can probably find us gabbing about it somewhere. And we're going to do another one-off. Still watching uh, next week, uh, Katie. Do you want to tell us about that? Because I won't. I won't be here for that, unfortunately. Yeah, we're going to talk about Candy. Uh, speaking of uh, white women killed inside of their homes in the eighties, um, it really. <laughs> I've only seen the first episode of it so far, so I can't spoil too much. But it really, the opening of it and Under the Banner of Heaven are remarkably similar. Um, and so I believe our colleague David Canfield, who you'll know from Little Gold Men, uh, and I will be talking about that. And you're off to France. I'm going to go to Cannes. And then after that, I think we should do Still Watching Sesame Street or Still Watching <laughs> Cooking Videos because I, I think we need to get away from murder for a bit. Uh, you know, Hacks is coming back. I don't think anyone's going to die on this season. I've only watched two episodes. So, uh, well, yeah, we'll find some good options. Well, until you cover Candy, Katie, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on a road trip across the West where I at least want to see some of these locations in real life for myself. Maybe I need to go to Alberta. Uh, or you can find me on Twitter at Katie Rich. Yeah, and I will be um, going to chiropractic school because it seems like a steady 
solid industry. Actually, no, because as Brenda says, in a downturn, that's one of the things that goes first. Movies and chiropractic. Maybe so. you just want to go to a chiropractor where someone who looks like Wyatt Russell will like adjust your back. That sounds good. While murmuring religious incantations. <laughs> yeah, maybe not that uh, <laughs> And I'm on Rylaws and I'm, you can read my review of Under the Man of Heaven on VF.com. I also have a review of the aforementioned Staircase and then some canned stuff. So uh, I'm eager. I eagerly await your episode with David, Katie, uh, and I'll be back with you guys all uh, soon enough. Safe travels. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th. From PR. 